Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brad. In this episode, we're going to delve into something like never before on the podcast. It's SST 59, the Sonic Youth album, Evil. And I mentioned, I think in the last episode, that I got into Sonic Youth way later than this record, and it would be around kind of the goo and dirty era. It was very interesting to go back and listen to this one. You know, Sonic Youth were around a bit before they got onto SST. This is a new lineup. There's a Minutemen connection. So very cool uh, to talk about this record. Do you have any spiels to start us off, Brent? Yeah, I sure do. Do you? I do. Why don't you go first? Oh, you're, you're too kind. I can't remember what episode it was, but I was rattling off a bunch of DVDs and stuff that are related to or around the same era or labels of the stuff that we talk about regularly on this show. And I neglected to mention one, and I was traveling over the last weekend, and I got to watch it because it's like for free on YouTube. It's a history of BYO Records. Oh, uh, documentary yeah it's called let them know and it's actually available in kind of a dvd lp or cd box set type thing that came out a while back but i'm just noted like i just discovered it now good documentary has a lot of the same people that you see in all the documentaries about this type of music and it just reminded me how much good stuff is on there and especially those byo comps which were really important when i was a kid growing up listening to those on cassettes so i wanted to recommend that one what about the canadian connection yeah the canadian connection is deadly they've got uh s and a few the unwanted all sorts of stuff on byo that was from canada but do, but do they cover it in the in the documentary they do they uh they cover a number of kind of ties not just the canadian bands but also the another state of mind tour that came through canada they had a couple of clips of that in the the byo history documentary and um, it's on my list to go back and watch another state of mind because that's a classic if i'm not mistaken the nils are also on a byo comp oh yeah for sure Yeah. yeah and we've uh we've raved about them in the past one of my favorites so there's another band that has kind of started up from around that time frame again, and I wanted to make one other quick recommend. Have you ever heard me mention a band called The Moving Targets before? Uh, yeah, I have a few of their records. Yeah. Yeah. Their first two records in particular are just awesome. And and I guess the main guy in the band is a guy named Kenny Chambers. Their lineup that they're kind of most known for was when there was a guy named Pat Leonard in the band and a drummer, Pat Brady, who you'll see him reference as kind of like the Neil Pert of punk rock drumming. Oh, really? Yeah, he's just insane. Hmm. Uh, but, but Kenny Chambers and Moving Targets, they wrote a ton of really good kind of melodic post-hardcore. Tang Records, if I'm not mistaken, right? Tang? Yeah. And uh, their first two records in particular... Burning in Water and Brave Noise are really good. They had a different bass player on the Brave Noise record, but it's still really good. Uh, anyways, Moving Targets, they recently released on Boss Tunage, the other side demos, and then some sessions. 
It was originally actually put out as a single LP, recently re-released as a double LP, so it's an expanded edition, I guess. And they have started playing again under the name Moving Targets, Kenny Chambers has, and they just released a new EP, and it's oh. really good. So oh, I have to check that out. Yeah, it's up on uh, Bandcamp, but I'm a big fan of them. That uh, first record, Burning in Water, is pretty flawless. And there's mm. a couple of songs on there that are, uh, you know, they're of that caliber that they make the uh, the hair stand up on your arms. So got to check out that new Moving Targets EP and their uh, the other side demos record that just came out. What el- what else do you like that's on Tang Records? Because I'm I've been just mostly just thinking about Tang while you've been talking. Do you want to know the best band on Tang? Let me just think for a second here. Yeah, you why don't you go first and I'm gonna try and think of a couple more. Poison idea. <laughs> I never got into them. What? Yeah. Oh I never, boy. I never got onto Poison Idea. You know what's a really good one? What's that? Sloppy Seconds, Knock Your Block Off. Yeah, Sloppy Seconds. Bish- Mission of Burma was on there, the Dickies. There's a, there's a band called Titanics that have a really good album. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Let me see what else. Oh, there's a bullet. There's at least one Bullet LaVolta record on Tang, and Kenny Chambers from Moving Targets eventually joined them as well. They're good. Hmm. I'm going to send you that Titanics album. It's really good. Okay. The Liars. Yep. Um, let me see. There's lots of good stuff on Tang, actually. Probably my yep. favorite would be Mission of Burma and Moving Targets, though, for sure. Anyways, good reminder. Yep. What are your spiels there, bro? Oh, I got lots. Buckle in. Okay. You're going to have to call me uh, Spieler Walker Jr. by the time I'm done here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, but but get going. Okay. Uh, you challenged me, Ryan. You gave me a few challenges a couple oh, episodes oh, back. Man. Oh, man, I can't wait for this one. You were going f- through some doll withdrawal, which I'm happy to hear, by the way. Yes, hit me. Jeff, Jeff doll withdrawal? Yes. Uh, have you heard the 7-inch uh, by a band called The Chemical Dolls? <laughs> no. Oh, no. I bet you I know what it is. Yeah, I bet you do. It's Jeff Dahl and the Chemical People. <laughs> but that's not all. The name of the 7-inch, Ryan, is Sympathy for Gigi. Oh, oh, okay. So I don't have that single, but I've got a Chemical People compilation record that I bet you has those songs on it. Okay. Yeah. Well, it was uh, two songs they did as a benefit for Gigi when he was in prison at some point. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. There's, your, there's your Jeff Dahl update. Excellent. It is, is one of them, oh man, I don't even want to say the names. I think one is called Dead or Alive. Maybe. Yeah, well, that's a good one. Good connection to the doll. I also think Jeff Dahl's recording a new album right now. Huh. So that's exciting. wonder what that sounds like. Uh, Like his glammy stuff. He did one a few years ago called Hawaii, because that's where he lives now. I think that's where he was born, actually. Don't quote me on that, but it's, you know, it sounds like his Thunders era stuff. It's good. Okay, the other challenge, Ryan, uh, was you challenged me to re-listen to some Danzig? Yes. Okay, so here's what I did. Uh, <laughs> I listened to uh, Black, Ac- Black Acid Devil, 666 Satan's Child, and they sound like lame-ass attempts to sound like White Zombie or something like that. Yeah, he had some... Uh, industrial albums that are not that good. Those aren't the ones I was recommending, dude. They're not? No. Well, you said you listened to them and they were good. I did. They're they're okay, but they're not nearly as good as um, 
like obviously the first four are good and there's an unreleased or like rare Danzig uh record compilation the lost tracks of Danzig lost, that's good lost tracks of Danzig that one's good yeah. yep but I was talking about like Death Red Sabbath and Circle of Snakes and stuff like after the industrial phase. Well, I tr I was going in order and I I didn't get anywhere past six 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 Satan's Child. I just completely <laughs> lost the plot after that. I mean, I like you know a lot of industrial music. I like Ministry and Godflesh and even some Skinny Puppy and stuff. But that is just shitty. Yeah. And. Okay, well, I was going to say I was surprised you were into it because it's totally not your thing. And no, no. It's just awful. You know what? I even listened to Danzig 4. It's got good songs, but that is the start of it just sounding awful when he goes into his upper register on that one. Yeah. Yeah, he's straining. Yeah. I'm going to re-recommend, though, after Black Acid Devil and Satan's Child, uh, check out like Circle of Snakes, Death Red Sabbath, even the covers record, there's some redeeming qualities. Okay. Well, I did put, uh, I was on a road trip recently and I put Danzig 2 on in the in the car and I was banging pretty it's, hard. Yeah, that's pretty killer. The production is awesome and Chuck Biscuits is unstoppable. You know what though? I'm not like an audiophile at all, but that album needs to be remastered. You think so? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds quiet. I thought yeah. like the production's good, but you just want to, I guess, round it out and make it a little louder. Yeah. Okay. Don't get me into the battle of loud. Okay, I won't. Well, we got a tip from a listener. Jeff e emailed us to let us know that we mentioned the "Gimme Gimme Gimme" compilation. It's like a flag tribute country thing that you have with some of the members. Yeah, I've got that. Yeah, we talked about that a long time ago. I believe on our first four years episode. Okay. And we must have said we don't know who Jimmy Destry is who plays on it. Yeah. Do you know who he is? No, I, I still don't know. Okay, well, he's the keyboard player for Blondie. Really? Yep. That's interesting. So there you go. wonder what the connection there is. Don't know. All right, let's see here. Uh, Ryan, f funny you brought up the uh, spiel you were doing about documentaries because I was going to bring that up. Oh, yeah? I ha I have one for you. A recommendation. Okay. Sound, sound and Chaos, the story of BC Studio. Have you seen that? The, oh, like the Martin BC Studio? Yes. No, I have not seen that documentary. Okay, well, it's great. It's by this dude, Ryan Douglas and uh, Sarah Leavitt. And uh, it kind of goes through the whole history. Like, uh, he started that studio kind of with Bill Laswell from the band uh, Material. Yep. And he's done a zillion other things. I think he's played a bunch with John Zorn and stuff. Yeah, he's a big-time producer. Yeah. Uh, Brian Eno actually chipped in to get the studio started because he was living in New York and he wanted to, like, kind of foster this avant-garde space for for uh, recording. This was in, like, 1981. And what really got the studio rolling is they kind of were at the ground level on the New York hip-hop scene. When it first started, like Fab Five Freddy and Afri Africa Bombada and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And they, they ended up recording that song Rocket, Herbie Hancock Rocket there. Yes. Yeah. Which won a Grammy. And uh, 
tons of records have been recorded there, like uh, some of Ramon's ba Brain Drain, uh, Iggy Pop Instinct, stuff by like all those New York bands like Alice Donut, Cop Shoot Cop, Violent Femmes have recorded there. Uh, that Chicone Youth single that we'll probably be talking about in a couple minutes here was recorded there. There's tons of great stories. Uh, well, here's a... I don't want to ruin it. Everyone should watch this documentary, but here's a, here's a story, an example of one of the stories they tell in this. Bob Burt, the drummer for Sonic Youth, just prior to Evil, he was on Bad Moon Rising, also recorded at BC Studio. He tells a story about how he was working as, as a screen printer for Andy Warhol, and he was in... in uh, their studio one night working away and he sees uh the new york the new york post cover of the uh andy warhol's artwork of sean and sean penn and madonna and uh he screen printed a bunch of copies of it and gave it to to his friends at a party that night and that ended up on the cover of the single for chicone youth new alliance release yep yep and uh the <laughs> It was actually a one-off gift that Warhol had made to give to Sean Penn and Madonna for their wedding. Obviously, it was used without permission on the album cover. Yeah, I wonder how that went. Yeah. I don't know. But anyways, it's a really great documentary. Everyone should check it out. And while they're at it, everyone should go over to our blog, mojackpod.com right now, because we have an interview up with Martin Bisi. Right on. I asked him about the documentary, Sound and Chaos. I asked him about the BC35 album that we talked about earlier this year that came out. Right. It's it's him and a bunch of artists that have recorded at BC Studios, like uh, people from Live Skull and a bunch of those kinds of bands. And uh, he, he also did some stuff later for SST, like The Blind Idiot God, SST 104. He's done some releases of his own for New Alliance Records. And uh, it's a great interview. He was a really nice guy. And uh, everyone should go check that out. Yeah, very cool. All right. So, Brent, do you want to get evil? I sure do. History lesson, part one. Ryan, uh, I'm going to mention a few of the books that I referenced here when I was researching this this episode. I think I mentioned in a, one of the Husker Du episodes that, that they were one of the most or I maybe said the most documented band on SST. It's definitely Sonic Youth, I think. There's a ton of material available. Yeah, I've got at least four books myself. Yeah, there's a really good one by David Brown called Goodbye 20th Century. That's a really good one. Uh, Michael Azarad, of course, has Our Band Could Be Your Life. Uh, this guy, Alec Foge, has a book called Confusion Is Next. It ends in 1994, right around the time of uh, Experimental Jet Set Trash and No Star, which is kind of a good thing because it then it makes him like focus on the everything up to that point a little more, maybe to kind of you know fill out the length of a book. Right. And it also has a foreword uh, by Thurston Moore in it. Stevie Chick who we've referenced a lot because of uh, his book Spray Paint the Walls about Black Flag. We also did an interview with him for the blog, if anybody wants to go and check that out. He has a, uh, a really great book called Psychic Confusion about Sonic Youth. And uh, do you know what the chapter on this album is called in his book? No, I didn't go back and reread it yet. Evolution Summer. Oh. You know what that's a, you get that reference? 
to yep. uh, DC and Discord Revolution Summer. Yep. Thurston Moore actually has a book called Alabama Wild Man, which is full of poetry and lyrics. Of course, Kim Gordon has written her own book, Girl in a Band, and she didn't use a ghostwriter for it either. Most of these people use ghostwriters. She wrote it herself, and it's awesome. That is a good book, I agree. Yep. And then a few kind of related to Sonic Youth, there is a 33 and a third book on Daydream Nation by Matthew Stearns. It doesn't say anything about really about evil in it, uh, but I, I grabbed it off the shelf just to see if it did. And it does have a foreword by Lee Ronaldo. Uh, and the foreword was written in Winnipeg, Canada in December 2006. Thought I'd mention that. Always trying to squeeze in a Winnipeg reference. <laughs> yep. And uh, one I got recently is by this guy, Nick Soulsby. He also wrote the Swans book uh, that I just picked, picked up called Sacrifice and Transcendence. Uh, there's no Sonic Youth in it, but what it is, is I think I might have mentioned it. It's uh, a, basically a complete Thurston Moore discography of everything he's played on. And it's super exhaustive. And there's stuff on like uh, New Alliance Records on the Coachman. Failure to Thrive right. album, right. which predates Sonic Youth, and uh, The Blue Humans, that Rudolph Gray project that Thurston produced. Yeah, that stuff is noisy. Yeah. So, that's a great book, if anybody's interested in, in Sonic Youth and Thurston Moore, for sure. Do you have any more books? No, that's it. Am I missing some? Uh, I will... I'll reference two that are... Like they don't even go into evil at all, but they're kind of Thurston Sonic Youth related. Thurston did a a book called Mixtape: The Art of Cassette oh, Culture. Oh, yep, that's, right. That's a good book. Um, and then he's also did a book with Byron Coley called No Wave: Post Punk right. Underground New York, nineteen seventy six to nineteen eighty. Those are both pretty kind of neat. Uh, lots of photos and stuff like that, obviously, and they're kind of coffee table books, but they're kind of neat. Right on. All right, so I'm going to give everybody a quick spiel about uh, the kind of the beginnings of Sonic Youth. Here's a Michael Azarad quote that I liked from Our Bank of Your Life. As the decade wore on and indie rock became more codified, Sonic Youth was a vivid reminder of the orig original impulses behind the movement. I think he means the punk movement, movement yep. there. Yeah, for sure. They were, you know... To, to me, Sonic Youth kind of defined indie cool. They brought art and rock music together. Uh, they were inspired by the New York City no-wave scene uh, with bands like Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, DNA, Mars, The Contortions, all bands that are on that famous comp, no-wave, produced by Brian Eno. Uh, so every, most people know Thurston Moore. The, all these people moved to New York. The, the key players, anyways. Thurston Moore moved to New York from Connecticut. Uh, Kim Gordon came from California. Lee Ronaldo was fairly close. He came from Long Island. Uh, they all moved to New York around the same time. Thurston joins the band The Coachman, whose album was re released posthumously on New Alliance Records. Uh, Lee Ronaldo was an art student, played in a band called The Flux. And uh, after new moving to New York, he joins Glenn Bronca's Sextet, which is an all-guitar band, and uh, did some touring of uh, US, the U.S. and Europe. In the meantime, Thurston and Kim meet, and they form a band together 
And some of the names they first had were Male Bonding and Red Milk. And then they play their first shows as the Arcadians. And uh, at some point they play with Glenn Bronca's band and Thurston asks Lee to join up with them. Uh, and they meet this guy, Richard Edson, and he joins on drums. And that lineup records a an EP for Glenn Bronca's Neutral Records in 1982, which is going to come out on SST later as SST 97. And it's been recent, recently reissued again with a bunch of live stuff from the era on Neutral Records. Summer of 82, uh, Richard Edson leaves and... They get Bob Burt into the band, who was a fan, was a fan of that EP, and he saw a flyer advertising uh, for a drummer, and he he called up Thurston Moore. And at this point, they do a tour with Swans, and Moore and Bob Burt aren't really getting along. So when they get back to New York, uh, Thurston Moore fires him. So then their new drummer is Jim. I'm gonna mess this up. Sklavness who was in some no-wave bands, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, and Eight-Eyed Spy. There's also a really good documentary about uh, the no-wave scene, Kill Your Idols. Have you seen that? I have not. It's really good. It has been added to the list. Then in 1983, they record a full-length they call Confusion is Sex, also comes out on Neutral, and later as SST-96. Around this time, they really start experimenting with alternate tunings and buying as many cheap guitars as they can. There's a great story about them recording either uh, Bad Moon Rising or Evil that Martin Bisi's telling in his studio where like every corner of, the, corner of the studio is just piled with guitars, like just piled on top of each other. There's a, a great thing about it in, in Michael Azarad's book where he says they'd come out on stage... Uh, Lee and Thurston would come out on stage. They wouldn't acknowledge the crowd and they'd just stand there for 15 minutes tuning their guitars and then like walk back off. And it almost became like part of the act because there was just guitars everywhere, you know? Right. At this time, uh, Thurston and Lee tour Europe with Glenn Bronca and they set up their own tour along the way, like they talk to promoters and and get Sonic Youth gigs on a European, European tour. Uh, but Jim, the drummer, quits. So they, they ask Bob Burt back to the band. They tour some more and record uh, the Kill Your Idols EP for a German label. Zensen is the name of the label. They'd hooked up with it while they were on tour. And also, uh, Thurston releases the Sonic Death album, which is early Sonic Youth Live 81 to 83 on his uh, Essential Peace label. And that will also be released later on SST as SST 181. That's not going to come out until 1988. Then uh, we're getting into 1984. They rec record Bad Moon Rising with Martin B.C., that comes out on Blast First in the UK and Homestead Records in the US. They do a bunch more touring throughout 1985 and Bob quits this time, mostly just tired of being broke. This is kind of what he chalks it up to, living too close together in a van. He just wasn't into it. He had a good 
screen printing job and wasn't really feeling the road. He went on to play with Pussy Galore, uh, Chrome Cranks, Knoxville Girls, a, a band I really liked that released a couple albums way later on In the Red Records. And it was around this time that uh, a guy named Steve Shelley, who played in a band called The Crucifix, who had released an album on Alternative Tentacles, uh, asked Lee Ronaldo to produ produce their follow-up. And uh, instead, they asked him to join Sonic Youth, which he does. And this is becomes the core lineup of the band uh, till their till their breakup. Uh, they did add a few members. Uh, Jim O'Rourke played guitar from 1999 to 2005, and after he left the band, Kim switched. Kim Gordon switched to guitar, and Mike Eibald came in on bass. But uh, these four guys are now the core of the band. And the interesting thing about uh, this is another story that they tell in the BC Studios documentary. Uh, Bob Burt's getting interviewed, and he talks about how it was a pretty friendly transition when he left the band. There was no bad blood. And uh, Steve had just joined, joined as they were filming the video for Death Valley 69, which had just come out as a 7-inch. And so both drummers are in the video. And speaking of the Death Valley 69, here's a plug for another documentary, Ryan, that is not out yet as far as I know, but you might, you might have seen something about it online. That Death Valley 69 single was released by this guy, Stuart Sweezy, Sweezy? Not sure which, on Iridescence Records. And he's a guy who produced these kind of generator shows in the desert. Yep. With cool names like the Gila Monster Jamboree in the Mojave Desert. And I think he did uh, some other site-specific shows, kind of leg legendary ones like Joy at Sea with the Minutemen and Meat Puppets. And Lawndale. And I'm pretty sure the Gila Monster Jamboree was Sonic Youth, Meat Puppets, Red Cross, and Psycom, Perry Farrell's first band. Oh, yeah. Anyways, he has a documentary coming out, Desolation Center, which is, I think, about those shows. Yeah, I've seen those ads. Yeah. This album, of course, Ryan, is their first one for SST. They had booked a U.S. tour with uh, out to the West Coast with kind of an aim... Uh, to gain the attention of SST, who were they, they were kind of fascinated with. And according to the book, Our Band Could Be Your Life, uh, Greg Ginn, Chuck Dukowski, and Mugger were into Sonic Youth, but Joe Carducci wasn't. And as we've mentioned before, they kind of had a pact at that time anyways, where all four owners had to agree. And the story is, shortly after Joe Carducci left the label, which was right around this time, uh, legend has it that it was literally minutes after he left that Greg Ginn called Thurston Moore and Kim <laughs> Gordon and asked asked them to be on SST. Yeah, well, we spoke in the last episode about how, you know, after three-way tie for last, it's a bit of a change. It's, a, it's kind of a new era for SST. Yeah. Joe Carducci leaving is another marker for it starting to be a new era. And I mean... Sonic Youth, this record is unlike anything before, right? It is a big step, totally. big step change for SST. Well, and I mean, we've had uh, some East Coast bands before, like Das Domin, I'm thinking, for starters. But this is kind of like the really the start of them branching out and going across the country. Yeah, you know? I'd say so. Yeah, here's a good quote from Goodbye 20th Century that kind of touches on that. 
This is, uh, I'm not sure who this is attributed to, but SST, it might just be the author. SST hadn't bothered to send records to college radio since they didn't count on either its support or that of the press. Hiring Ray Farrell for such a job in 1985 was another sign of how seriously SST was beginning to take itself as a business. Apparently the band uh, Sonic Youth had dinner with Chuck while they were in California to ask him if Global could help with some booking. And uh, SST was in search of what Chuck called a nationwide vibe. Here's Chuck. I thought it would help us to have a group local to New York, working with us by giving us an inside angle with the New York scene and venues that could be used to help the West Coast groups that were going there on tour. Smart move. And that's, yep, it is. And that's kind of, uh, you know, Sonic Youth were real tastemakers right up to the end of their career. And, you know, it much has been said about the reason they got signed to Geffen. Wasn't so much for their own ability to sell records but it was for the talent that they could attract to the label which paid dividends when they convinced nirvana (laughs) to sign to dgc yeah yeah well they were a fixture in that new york scene for sure the no wave scene and uh i mean they kept that connection for a long time and they had a lot of goodwill i think in that scene that other bands like they paved the way for a lot of bands on the east coast that way yeah, they definitely helped out a lot of bands. And uh, as far as their connection to the no-wave scene, this, I think, is their attempt to maybe get away from that, to distance themselves a little bit from that scene, this album. For me, it is, for sure. I mean, yeah. the first two records, they have never really grabbed me just because they're a little a little too dissonant, I guess. Um, and this one... Like I said, I kind of got into them a lot later, but this is one where, and I don't know whether it's because they got Steve Shelley or or what. I don't know if that was the big enough reason, but you can definitely see them starting to turn into the Sonic Youth that really got famous for a moment there. Yeah. Well, it's because they're starting to become more of a rock band, right? I guess. With, with noise elements, yeah. to me. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. With that, do you want to go into History Lesson Part 2 and start talking about the album? Yeah, for sure. History Lesson Part 2. This was recorded in February and March of 1986 at Martin B.C. Studio in New York. And then it was released in May of 86. They toured some dates with Saccharin Trust after that, which I thought was really cool. And this was the album they really started getting tons of press and making all of like the year-end lists with. Yeah, I thought I had read that when this first came out, it did kind of, it was met with kind of mixed reviews. But there were definitely some people who heralded it as like something to take notice of for sure. Yeah. Found a, a kind of a few cool quotes in that Confusion is Next book that kind of I guess, uh, sums up, you know, their importance around this time. Sonic, this is Sonic Youth's emergence as indie rock darlings, and it coincided with the rise of a new and improved SST. This album played an important role in Sonic Youth's transformation from a New York art rock oddity to an independent supergroup. 
I found uh, Pitchfork Magazine has this listed as 31 on their top 100, 100 albums of the 80s. Uh, the, the other main album uh, that they did for SST, Sister, uh, was listed as 14th on that list. And do you know what number one is? Of the 80s? Yeah. Oh, man. It could be a lot, but it better either be Double Nickels or Zen Arcade. I don't know. It's Daydream Nation, Sonic Youth. Number one. On, on This is Pitchfork's list, yep. Oh, really? For this one, they say, this is where the seeds of greatness were sown. Evil? Yep. I would, I agree. Like, again, this is, yeah. this is, uh, this is when I can start getting into Sonic Youth. Yeah. Here's a good quote I found in Kim's book about how they wrote the songs. She says, The way they composed was always the same. Thurston or Lee would sing the poppy, more melodic things from riffs one of them wrote. Kim sang the weirder, more abstract things that came out of jam sessions. She calls evil their faux goth record. I can see it. It's a mellow record for sure. Very atmospheric. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I love the production on it. I think it, I think, uh, like I'm going to pay attention to when I see Martin BC again on some production credits because I really like the sound of this record. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. With some great, very subtle, dissonant guitars and drums and stuff like that all over this record. It's awesome. Yeah. Ryan, let's talk about the artwork for this because it's got, there's some pretty famous stories about that. Yes. Uh, so the cover photo is of an actress, I guess, called Lungleg. And she was an actress in a lot of um, Richard Kern films. Have you ever watched any of his stuff? Give me some names. Well, I believe this one is from uh, Submit to Me. Uh, the Right Side of My Brain is one. There's some, like Henry Rollins is in some of them. Lydia Lunch is in a, in a lot of them. Many of them are up on YouTube. They are not safe for work <laughs> <laughs> at all. <laughs> there's some, pre there's some pretty insane stuff. Like, it's you know, they're pornos, basically. Lots of gore, too. He kind of, uh, he did some videos, too. Uh, he did a video for Concubine by the Butthole Surfers, and he, I can't remember the story. I think he did the Death Valley 69 documentary, or uh, video, or he, he, like, provided all the gore for it, like the blood and guts. It was kind of his thing. And then someone else, shot it and he did a re-edit of it or something like that, like a gorier version of it. Uh, but really avant-garde art films. Um, and Lungleg is in, uh, I'm pretty sure it's the film Submit to Me. And that's where this photo's taken. I wonder how many people thought that was Kim Gordon on the cover. Yeah, I think I probably did. I bet you I did for a while. I think I thought it was Lydia Lunch for a while, because she sings on the track Death Valley 69. And I had um, a video compilation came out in the 90s. This is way pre-internet, called uh, 
Screaming Fields of Sonic Love, I think it's called. It was when uh, DGC acquired the rights to Evil, Sister, uh, and uh, some of the earlier 80s stuff, the Chicone Youth album, and they released a compilation plus all the videos on a VHS. And this is on there, uh, Death Valley 69, and uh, Lydia Lunch sings on the track. The title of the album uh, comes from a video by a New York visual artist named Tony Ausler. That's where they got the name Evol from, which is, of course, love spelled backwards. Right. The back cover has kind of a heart shape with a picture of the band inside it. Kind of looks like watercolor painting around it. Uh, the photo's credited to Lee. That's about all I have. I think the the vinyl, the original SST vinyl, comes with a, a picture sleeve. But I think you have the uh, DGC re reissue, right? Yes, I do. I have the original SST cassette. Okay. It's all I've ever owned of this on. Uh, engineered, I'm just reading the inside of it here. Engineered by Martin B.C. at Before Christ Studios, I think. I don't think he uh, he named it Before Christ Studios. I think it was called B.C., like the the letters B and C. Right. And his, la his last name is B.C., B-I-S-I. And I think, I'm pretty sure they say this in that documentary that Sonic Youth didn't like that name, so they na they started calling it Before Christ on the back of their album covers huh uh oh yeah right here it says cover girl lung leg from submit to me by rich a film by richard kern all material by sonic youth and then it just says love to carlos love to carlos who's that i don't know who carlos is don't know yeah that's not on my version should we talk about the tracks yeah well i guess before we do that i'll just mention like i've got the david geffen re-release like the the booklet has a bunch of artwork in it that um, yep. you'll see kind of show up on the singles, like the Star Power single. It's got a that that kind of a famous picture, I guess, of Thurston with those eyes on his hands. Mm -hmm. A bit of a write up by someone named Lisa Crystal Carver. Yep, and it's got another another photo of the band, a color photo in it. That's about it. And then uh, the rest of the credits kind of relate to the songs once we get to them. So this came out, Ryan, uh, like I said, in May of 86 on vinyl and cassette. And then the CD re was released in late 86 on SST. I wonder if this is one of the first CDs that came out in real time. And not way later on SST. It might be. I mean, CDs had been out for a long time before that. They weren't really popular in North America. And this might be like SST venturing into CDs for the first time with this record. Yeah. Dig this though, Ryan. Uh, you mentioned the Star Power 12-inch that we're going to be getting to in about 20 more episodes. 
Yeah. Literally, it's like 21 more episodes. I think it's SST 80. That was released in July of 86. Just wrap your head around that. This this album was released in May of 86. And between May of 86 and July of 86, there's 21 releases. Yeah. Star Power is SST 80. Yeah. Now, I'm just looking, and I th- and they are, when you look at it, it's Angst, Bad Brains, St. Vitus, or sorry, Program Annihilator compilation, Slovenly, um, a couple of various artists that they are re-releases, like the Chunks record, 7-inch work, Wonders of the World, Leaving Trains, Swa, Alternatives, Paper Bag, then Firehose. It's a ton of stuff in that time. It's pretty crazy. It's insane. And such different bands, too. Yeah. Like, you look at the catalog, uh, you know, printed out on paper, and you think... (laughs) You look down the line and you think, oh, that's like a year away. And it's like a month and a half. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose some of them might be out of order where they just kind of kept the number on the shelf, you know, like I think Joe Carducci mentioned once in his blog. But but even still, that's an insane schedule. Yeah. Let's talk about the tracks. Let's do it. Okay, side one starts with uh, the track Tom Violence. Uh, Apparently that was a play on Tom Verlaine from television's name. Okay. Uh, Steve Shelley plays the mallets on this one. He says that's a holdover from his marching band days. On the floor toms, I think. Yeah, it's a bit of a slower opener. It's got the noisy middle part that kind of lets you know, uh, lets everyone know that Sonic Youth is still Sonic Youth. I like this song. It's kind of tribal, noisy. Yeah. It's it's uh, and it's all Thurston. Yeah, it's an interesting opener for sure. I like it. It really sets the tone for the whole record in my mind. Yeah. Uh, track two, "Shadow of a of a Doubt." Uh, here's from Kim's book. It came from an Alfred Hitchcock film. She's trying to describe the connection you feel. When Your Eyes Meet Another Person's. The title was a 1943 Hitchcock film called Shadow of a Doubt, and the lyrics uh, were are kind of a nod to Hitchcock's 1951 film Strangers on a Train. Apparently some of the lyrics are actual lines from the movie. The movie's about a man who tries to exchange uh, murder motives with another man he meets on a train. And uh, I mentioned that uh, Screaming Fields of Sonic Love that came out around 95, the album and video compilation. This one's on there, the video for it, shot by a, a guy named Kevin Kerslake. And it's kind of a famous Sonic Youth video. Kim's riding around on the top of a train, going in and out of tunnels. And there's some live footage on there too. And it's very psychedelic. For me, I just loved like the guitar harmonics are a really cool way to structure a song. And like build, it's cool to build a song around that. I have that note too, exactly. My notes are awesome guitar harmonics and kim's whispering voice it's eerie yeah uh the third track star power is kind of their i guess like the single obviously as you mentioned they they do release this one later as as a single uh the single version is edited it's kind of got the noisy section taken out 
So we'll be getting to that one soon enough. This is kind of like their rock song, I guess. There's a quote in uh, Goodbye 20th Century from Lyle Heisen. Remember him? Das Domin. He heard this one in the studio. He was hanging out with Thurston and Kim at the time, and he's, he's quoted in the book as saying, You thought, wow, they might be as big as the meat puppets. The lyrics were inspired by an L.A. magazine devoted to groupies, apparently. Uh, the lyrics are by Thurston, but Kim sings it. Uh, although, apparently, Thurston sang it live, most mostly. For me, I this is like that classic Sonic Youth tuning. When I heard that opening riff, I, I immediately thought of, like, Teenage Riot or Titanium Exposé with, with that classic Sonic Youth tuning. Yep. I was I googled Sonic Youth tuning and uh, they have a section on SonicYouth.com called the Tuning Tutorial and it's got how to tune for every Sonic Youth track on there. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. What I thought about this song, Ryan, is you can really hear the influence they had on uh, some bands like way later, like Fugazi and Jawbox and some bands that kind of had a bit of a noisier tendency from time to time. Yeah, in rock within rock structures, though. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if it was like a legit influence, but you can definitely see similarities. Yeah, uh, track four in the kingdom number nineteen. This one's uh, a Lee Ronaldo narrative of a gruesome car crash, and uh, apparently, uh, while Lee was recording part of his vocals in the vocal booth at BC Studios. Thurston threw a, like a, I don't know what you call them, a bunch of firecrackers, you know, in like a string. Yep. Into the studio. And you can hear them going off and you can hear Lee screaming in the studio. Apparently, like, the studio was just white with smoke and Lee came <laughs> out of it, j like, just fuming mad. I can see why. Yeah. This one's also remarkable because it has Mike Watt on bass. And this one's composed of snippets of studio jams kind of cut together by Martin Bc and then Lee kind of doing his thing over top of it. And, you know, I always like Lee's vocals. They're always good. He always has usually one per album. And if you think, like, Hey Joni, Eric's Trip, Skip Tracer off of uh, the Washing Machine album is really awesome. A Lee track I really like from one of his solo albums is... Uh, I think it was his first solo album uh, after Sonic Youth broke up called Between the Times and the Tides. There's a track on there called Waiting on a Dream, the first song that's just classically Ronaldo. This is kind of Mike Watt getting back into playing bass after Dee Boone passed away as well too, right? Yeah. He really credits Sonic Youth for kind of getting him back on his feet. He talks in Stevie Chick's book about... Um, Chicone Youth a, a bit, you know, and a, uh, about the single that they did that arose out of these sessions. Yeah. And he talks about why he chose Madonna's uh, second single, Burning Up, as like a track to do on there, which apparently he recorded at home as a demo and then mailed it to Sonic Youth. They liked it, so he re recorded it with Ethan James at Radio T Tokyo. Greg Ginn playing lead on it, but they ended up using the demo on the single. I thought that was kind of cool. But yeah, this was kind of the start of him. I think maybe we talked about this in the three-way three, three -way tie episode. He had went to stay with Kim and Thurston for a while and uh, was just hanging out after he drove Kira to 
uh, university. He, he went on to New York and hung out with Kim and Thurston, and that's when uh, he ended up playing on this album, kind of getting back into maybe considering starting a band again even. One other thing that I kept uh, picking out every time I heard this, this might be a really obscure reference, Ryan, but there's a pick slide on this song in the Kingdom number 19 with like a, a guitar effect on it, like a flanger or a phaser maybe. And it reminds me of, I used to go to that Xeno Records site all the time when it was still getting updated and see if there was any wipers updates. Oh yeah, right. And every time you clicked on it, there was a track off of like The Herd or Silver Sail or one of those later wipers albums. And as soon as you went on to like xenorecords.com or whatever it was, or is, it's probably still up, it would play that pick slide off of, off that wiper song. And it sounds exactly like this one. <laughs> uh, the next track on the A side, Green Light. This one's got Thurston's on vocal Thurston on vocals. For me, it's a weaker track. The next few are, are kind of weak for me. This one's not super memorable. Yeah, the first half of the record is much stronger, but it, it closes out the record pretty good eventually. Yeah. Flip it over and you've got Death to Our Friends. This one's instrumental, very Sonic Youth sounding. Uh, it kind of captures one of the things they do best for me, which is build up tension and then release it. Yeah. Secret Girl. Uh, this one's uh, a piano piece Thurston had recorded at his parents' house. Kind of became the basis for it. Uh, Kim says it's about uh, being repeatedly asked about being the only girl in a band by journalists. Yeah. Those liner notes you mentioned uh, in the D DGC reissue, Lisa Crystal Carver says, Kim's urgent secrets told with little more than her breath transported me. I liked that. Yeah, Kim Gordon has got such a unique and memorable voice in Sonic Youth for sure, right? Yeah. Uh, track three on side two, Marilyn Moore. Grew out of Thurston's reading of Norman Mailer's book on Marilyn Monroe. His it's his attempt at personalizing her story by making uh, Monroe his sister. This track opens with screams Thurston and Lee had taped in an old metal silo in Europe. I had read that this one was co-written with Lydia Lunch. Did you see anything on that? Yep. The lyrics uh, in the first verse are credited to Sonic Death. And then in the second verse, they're credited to Lydia Lunch. Aha. I also read somewhere that the opening screams were uh, screams they recorded at that Gila Monster Jamboree and then tape manipulated. So, interesting. I'm not sure which, which one of those is true. Then we move on to uh, probably the most famous track on the album, Expressway to Your Skull. Of course, spelt Y-R, which is a Sonic Youth thing for sure. It's a nod to Buddy Miles Express and the Stax Soul classic Expressway to Your Heart. Apparently, Neil Young later called it the greatest guitar song of all time. And if you think about Neil Young way later, I think he did some touring with Sonic Youth. Yeah, no, they and they were Sonic Youth opened for Neil on a tour for sure. Yeah, well, they were definitely an influence on like his Arc album and that Weld era. Yeah, that live album Weld that's really noisy. 
on my CD version, Expressway yep. to Your Skull is not even listed on the back. Uh, well, on the LP, it's listed as, on the back cover as Madonna, Sean, and me. Yeah. And on the lyric sheet, it's listed as The Crucifixion of Sean Penn. <laughs> yeah. It's also, on the LP, it ends in a locked groove, this one. Yeah. According to Kim, this is their first so-called love long song. They did it in one take. Confusion is next says this is as close to a signature signature song as Sonic Youth has ever mustered. And that locked groove apparently on the SST version is why when they have like the track length or whatever, I can't maybe it's not on the SST version. I can't remember, but they have the sign for infinity. Rather than, oh yeah, yeah. Rather than an actual like you know minute and seconds, right? To me, this is the album centerpiece. I love those huge Dick Dale glissandos in the song, and then uh, on the CD and cassette versions, not on the original LP, we have Bubblegum, originally by Kim Foley, appeared on his 1968 album Outrageous. It's a very 60s sounding song. It's got like the the moon and sun lyrics. Co-written by Marty Cerf, who is a rock journalist who also wrote stuff with, a lot of stuff with Kim Fowley uh, for bands like The Seeds. Watt plays bass on this one again. Apparently uh, Watt and Steve Shelley uh, played the rhythm track over the actual record, like the Kim Fowley record, and then uh, they removed, like just removed it out of the mix afterwards. That's it. That's all I have. It's a good album. It's not one that I will be going back to a ton admittedly but um i have a new appreciation for it for sure like i definitely write off the earlier sonic youth stuff and i pretty much start at daydream nation yeah pretty much start there and and realistically it was goo and dirty that got me in but new appreciation for this one it's a cool atmospheric mellow noisy dissonant record yeah, honestly, that, that compilation that I mentioned a few times, Screaming Fields of Sonic Love, I listened to that a ton when it came out. So, you know, my favorite songs off this are the ones that are on there, which are kind of like the big songs, like Expressway to Your Skull, Star Power, uh, Shadow of a Doubt. I like Tom Violence as an opener on the record still, too. Do you want to talk about yeah. the ballot result? Sure. Ballot result. Yeah, I also really like the song In the Kingdom, number 19. Oh, the spoken word piece? You're a bit of a Lee Ronaldo yeah. fan, hey? Yeah, I, I always liked the songs he sings on. I like his voice a lot. But, I mean, for me, it's kind of an obvious choice, but I think you kind of have to give it to Expressway to Your Skull. Don't you? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I was going to... I mean, this is your pick anyways, without a doubt, but um, I think that's a good one for this one. Yeah. Shadow of a Doubt's really good, too. There's there's lots of good songs on here. Yeah. This one I will listen to again. Like, There's actually a real chance that I would have never really went back to this record ever again if I didn't have an excuse to listen to it for this show. And now I'm going to go back to it. I know I will. Right on. Ryan, what's next week? Well, we're finally going to answer the question, who's got the 10 and a half by Black Flag? I think I know who it is. I think I know. I can't wait to see if I'm right. <laughs> Me either. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. 
We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.